Well, I don't know about you, so forgive me for a little bit greater excitement because every single time we get to start a new book, a new study, uh, there is something exciting about digging in to another portion of God's revelation, and that's what we're going to be doing this morning. And if you're new here, uh, this, is a, this is a normal practice for us as we think about uh, teaching and preaching through books. We're going to take our Bible, we're going to go verse by verse and, and walk our way through various texts, and that's what we are doing. And if this is your first Sunday, welcome, because you get to be the, at the start of a new series. Uh, Joshua is a fantastic book. Uh, when I was first introduced to the book of Joshua, I was in Minnesota. I was pastoring a church, and uh, there was an older gentleman who has now passed away. He was uh, what we would call often one of the patriarchs of the church, a dear brother from the time that I can remember from the first sermon I had ever preached at that church who came in on early on a Sunday morning where I was practicing my sermon thinking I was alone, but he was there. Quite embarrassing. But he came back to me and he said, can I just pray for you? And from that time forward, uh, I just had a dear relationship with this brother uh, until he had passed away. But one of those particular occasions, I was sitting in my office and uh, his son-in-law was, in, was intending to go to Africa uh, to be part of a teaching team, and they were teaching through the book of Joshua. And I thought, well, this is great. We had, we had prayed for the team. We knew uh, who they were, and all of a sudden, I got an email in my inbox that said, how about Joshua? Go and teach Joshua. And I'm like, and he says, and I'll cover it all. Whatever you need, I want you to go there and help the team teach uh, in the northern part of Zambia. And so as I started to study the book of Joshua uh, on a teaching setting, I just fell in love with it by the fact that it was my name as well. It was just a side note blessing that I could study about something going on uh, that referred to uh, my own name. But it's been a huge blessing uh, to be able to teach through that book. And I've always wanted to uh, preach through the book. Teaching it is a little different than preaching it. And, and so the excitement of just pouring myself into this study on behalf of the body of Christ is an incredible privilege, and that's where we're going to go uh, in the number of coming weeks uh, as we study this together. But I think it's fitting. Uh, let's do this, because as we start, we need the Holy Spirit's help, don't we? Uh, this is such an important facet. Every time we dig into God's Word, we cannot do it in and of our own strength. We need the work of the Spirit to illuminate our minds, to appreciate the things that God has in store for us. So let me just do this. Let me ask the Lord to help us as we embark on this study of the book of Joshua together. Father, Lord, we come before you desirous, excited, anticipatory in our minds of what you're going to teach us. Lord, we know that you have us going through a book like this by your own providence, by your own sovereignty, there are things that you want each and every one of us, young and old, to learn of who you are and how you work and the grace that you display and the forgiveness and mercy, Lord, that you have given to your people that we see in our own lives. Oh, Lord, we, are, we cannot do this alone. We need the Spirit of God, so Spirit, please help us understand the, the nature of your word. Help us to understand the significance of the words that the author has penned down for us so that we might be better, godlier people as a result of seeing you and how you work with your people and love you that much more. In your name we pray, amen. Well. As we, as we walk through the study of the book of Joshua, at least one of the questions that, came, that comes to our mind, we've parked ourselves in the book of Philippians for a number of different months since I first arrived in March, and at least this question, why study the Old Testament over against studying the New? Isn't New better than Old? Well, the reality is, is revelation is good no matter where you find it. And there are different ways in which we begin to understand the revelation of God. And since the revelation of God it was a progressive revelation, he desired for us to know it over time and in different ways. And so there's different ways in which a historical narrative will speak to our understanding about the revelation of God. 
and, and, and it will all be consistent. No matter where we find our understanding of God, it will not contradict each other. But the Old Testament is something uh, quite remarkable. And I think as we, as we look at this particular uh, we look at this particular book itself and we think to ourselves, well, why study this? Well, Paul said in Romans chapter 15, he said this, he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, there's something, I don't know about you, but every time most often the uh, the, the New Testament authors quote or illustrate an Old Testament story, is it a good thing that you, you're being illustrated? Often not very good. Because he's saying things like, well, don't be like the children of Israel in the wilderness who grumbled, complained, were faithless. We're going to see a little bit of that today. But whatever was written in the past, in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction so that at some way when we get, through, we get to the book of Joshua and we begin to see the conquest of the land, we begin to put the piece of revelation together with preceding and, and later revelation, that we begin to see a picture of God and we are filled with hope. Story after story after story in the Old Testament is worth our, our investigation from Genesis to Malachi so that we could understand the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, we certainly understand this as well if we understand 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every single good work. Now, just keep this in mind theologically. Inspiration, when you think about old or new, it is not as if old is less inspired than new just because it came later. All inspiration, whether it's found from the Old Testament or new, retains the same exact qualitative component of being inspired and being breathed out by God. This is the very nature that ought to astound you as a Christian. How many different authors of, of 66 books of the Bible, but yet speak in one collective voice of redemptive history so that God himself could be revealed, our sin could be understood, and our problem so that we would repent and we would turn to Jesus Christ. And every place along that revelation was there for us so that we could, we could see more clearly the redemption that God had promised from, from Genesis 3.15 onward that when he said that, that, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that from that time forward all the way through the book of Revelation, there's something in our minds as Christians and students of the Bible that we go, okay, what's he doing? Something's coming up. Wait, this is, we don't know who it is yet. And there's always some sense of anticipation and that anticipation is the hope of the believer that God will do what God said when God said he would do it no later, no less, but exactly on time. He knows exactly the predicament of our world. He knew the predicament of every other ancient Near Eastern culture. He knew the predicament of the, of the, of the Canaanite culture during Joshua's time at the time of the conquest. Well, one of the things we often confuse when we think about narratives is we, we think, oh, well, I remember, I remember hearing all those little Bible stories. I love those stories. How many of you grew up in church uh, and, and in a Sunday school hearing the, the Bible stories of the Old Testament? Just a quick raise of hand, okay? Those were some of my favorite stories. I mean, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Who doesn't like that? I mean, I remember sitting there as a kid, hearing David and Goliath watching a teacher put another little child on top of their shoulders to try to somehow get the height advantage and thinking, whoa, he's big. But the stories come alive as we begin to understand the detail. But here's something different about the stories in the Bible versus just a, a, a straightforward historical account. See, the stories in the Bible and the history that is unfold, including in the book of Joshua, are not just some 
fiction that we read, that we enjoy, is like, wow, that was a great story. I mean, we have to wrap our minds around the reality that there were real people at a real time, in real circumstances, faced with real problems and real enemies. I mean, could you imagine what it would have been like, and we'll contemplate this, to be part of the, of the people walking around the walls of Jericho? Thinking, what are we doing here? Like, we're going to blow a trumpet and they're going to just fall down, right? But there they were. they were. They were astounded by the very works of God. And they were challenged in their faith because when God said to do something, no matter what he said, that's what they were called to do. They're not just some fiction that we read or we tell our children about as a bedtime story because it'll help them fall asleep. These are real, which means there's a real God behind the stories. And there's a real God who came to save people. There's a real sovereignty and providence that is working out in all of these stories. Now, here's, here's one thing we have to understand as you, maybe you're a student or a very new student to the Bible and you've been saved and you're trying to understand how do I study different books of the Bible. Well, we just came from the book of Philippians, and the, and the history of Joshua is very different, but there's similarities. Well, one of the things that we often look for in the epistle was, epistles were always understood as an occasional letter. You read the letter all at once, you tried to figure out what is the reason, why this was being instigated, and then it would help you interpret all the things that the apostle was saying based upon the occasion of the letter. Well, Guess what? The history books are a little bit different, which means they contain vast quantities of very particular information, events, stories, people who had been used at various times so that we could learn from them, so we could see ourselves in, in are we part of those grumbling people? Or were we somebody that was going to be eventually like a Joshua and a Caleb? so that we can mark our lives and say there's something really important. Well, history books, here's what we understand, history in the Bible. It's not just any story, but it's particular stories. There were so many things that happened in the wilderness wandering and in the life of the conquest that Joshua, and uh, as he would pick out these various stories, he did them with a theological focus. He wasn't just sitting down one day, by the way, just going, oh, I think I'll take this, and... He, he did work in chronology, but in a sense, there was a theological purpose to it. And the theological purpose of all historical narratives is to reveal God to us. Why is that? It's because in a story, in a narrative, you always have things, if, if you're familiar with various literature, and you look at these events and you read stories, you look for a main character. You look for sub-characters. You look for a plot. You look for enemies. You look for various redemption stories. All so that you get done and you put these together and you think, who is this? What is this about? Well, tuck this away in your mind. In the Old Testament stories, when we get to Joshua, or we talk about Caleb, or we talk about incidents in the life of the people of Israel, it is not Joshua who is the main character. He might be the main character of that story in, the, in, the, in, the, in a lesser sense, but the main character of the book of history of Joshua is God. It is God's unfolding of his eternal plan through the life of a people and through the life of particular people so that he could say, watch me and see who I am. See how I'm different than the gods of the Canaanite people. And watch how I'm gracious and watch how I'm kind. It's the story of God's creative, redemptive history with the purpose of glorification so that when you get done with every single battle, every single circumstance, that you step back and say, who but God could knock down the walls of Jericho? Just like we do when we get to David and Goliath and say, it wasn't David, it was David's God. And it wasn't the people of Israel, you will find out, it was the people of Israel's God. And every time you went into the ancient Near Eastern history, what you will find is, in a sense, it is a battle of the gods. Whose God is real? Whose God is accurate? 
whose God is gracious, and it is the God of the people of Israel who had over and over again proven to them that he is their redeemer in every sense of the word. Old Testament stories, in a sense, uh, uh, it helps us if we look at, the, at them with this broader perspective, instead of it just giving us a snapshot in time of a very particular historical event, when we study it as a whole, what we get is a panoramic view of the majesty of our God who comes to redeem. And that's what we want. And that's what historical books are intended to help us do. Now, they kind of function in this particular way. There's a top level to every historical narrative. Now, if you want a book that you want to try to be a better student of the Word, there's a really good book I've read a number of different times called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Stewart. Perhaps you're familiar with that. That's a really good condensed version of a hermeneutical process. There's a number of other ones. Uh, I'll like uh, Grant Osborne's hermeneutical spiral. And hermeneutics, all it is, is a study of interpretation. So if you're here, you're thinking, oh, man, I don't even know what that word is. Well, now you know. It's just simple. It's just the study of interpretation and how we study and then how we come to conclusions. Well, at the top level of a narrative, I always want us to be viewing the book of Joshua through a lens that sees these different focus. The top level is this. Something's going on in the book of Joshua that is being revealed about kingdom, about the kingdom history of the people of Israel and the kingdom of God and the redemptive history that God had foretold in Genesis chapter 3.15. There's always a sense in which we have to zoom really, really far out and go, what is he doing? See, if you, if you read the Bible from, from cover to cover, what you'll find is, all of a sudden, there was a God who promised and covenanted to Abraham that he would have a nation. As, as far as the sands of the sea, that's how many people it would be. That covenant was passed to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you were a good student, we won't ask for a raise of hand a month ago when I said read through Deuteronomy. But if you've been there, guess what you often found? I'm going to complete what I had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now notice in kingdom history what he's doing is, he, how can, how can a kingdom that Jesus Christ will one day be set as the king of kings and lord of lords if there isn't a group of people, if all of a sudden he doesn't separate himself a nation and call themselves Israel, and how can you have a kingdom if you, and a nation without a land? And all throughout the Old Testament, if we zoom out, we think there is, there's a people group that God has separated. He separated them out amongst the people groups of the world. He called them Israel. He knew them and called them, not because, by the way, they were this really great, sinless group of people. It's kind of like us. <laughs> These people who are struggling, complainers, and faithless, and, and, and sometimes merciless, and yet it, by God's grace, he, he helps us, and he grows us, and he changes us. We're like those people, people that need redemption. And in the kingdom history at this top level, he continues to move story after story so that we would ask questions as we walk through the book. Why would God save this people that everyone wants to kill? Because he's doing something. There's a reason why in 1948 all of a sudden Israel became a state. There's a reason that all the people began to gather back in Israel. Because God is still at work. And you can watch it happen in history. And we back up to the book of Joshua and say, this top level, we can, we can help us ask questions. But it's not only there, but it also focuses on a particular history. A, a history of a people. The people of God who were brought out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders. Oh, could you imagine have been part of that group? To cross the Red Sea? To, to be part of those people who were all of a sudden saying, we're going somewhere. Like, he heard us. And he sent a deliverer. He sent Moses to us. It's Israel's history. At this top level, it's we begin, or this middle level, we begin to understand it's the call of Abraham, it's his lineage, it's the patriarchs, it's their enslavement to Egypt, it's their deliverance from bondage and the, and the conquest of Canaan and all of these particular elements. 
so that we say, well, there's, there's a lot going on. There's a kingdom history, a redemptive history. There's an individual history of a group of people, but there's also a bottom level as well. And this is the immediate story itself. And story after story, this is where we'll be studying and putting it within the context of these three levels. These three levels are not new t- to me. I didn't make them up. You'd find them in uh, Gordon Fee's book, uh, and I find them very helpful. You find variations of these levels by different authors in different books of the study of interpretation. Now, why Joshua? Now, why is Joshua a significant book in the Old Testament? I love how one author put it uh, in a preceding introduction by Francis Schaeffer's book on, on the conquest of Canaan. Francis Schaeffer was a, uh, an, an early philosopher and theologian Uh, that passed away back in about the 1980s, but lived from about 1912-1980s. He wrote this book on Joshua, which I found incredibly helpful. The the one who introduced it said this. He says, Joshua in the Old Testament, in, in, in relation to the Pentateuch, was what the book of Acts in the New Testament was in relation to the four Gospels. It is that transitional book. How do you go from the first five books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then all of a sudden, get into the kingdom. You have questions like, how did you get here? How did you get into the land? God promised this. Joshua serves as a book of transition so that we would know how they got from where they were to where they are in the kingdom when all the history of the kingdoms, first Kings, first and second chronicles, and all the prophets were talking about that Israel would be a nation and they would be a kingdom. Joshua is that transitional book. So mark it in your mind, much like you would the book of Acts. And so it becomes a really critical history in the life of the people. Now, let me just pause for a second, because this was so critical, because for years, hundreds of years at this particular point, the people of Canaan, which we'll study a little bit in the future, so I'm not going to give you a full history, these people in the land were despicable idol worshipers, child sacrificers. And you think, are you sure that's the land we want to go to? (laughs) And he said, but I promise this. Geographically speaking, just on the geographical level, Israel was sovereignly and providentially placed in a land that was called the land between And all that simply is to state by geographers is that it is the land between a land bridge to the north and a land bridge to the south going to Africa or to Europe. They were the gateway. Why would God choose this land at this time for this people? Maybe it might just have something to do with every time some traveler from the south or traveler from the north would go in one direction or the other and they would hear of the wonders of the people of God that they would take it with them wherever they went. And he uniquely positioned the land of Israel to be a gateway and a conversation piece to a world that was needing redemption. And he was going to use Israel as the spokesperson to carry that message of redemption to the nations. There's no accident by God, even in the placement of a land and a people. So when we think about Joshua, it holds a very special component when we think about uh, this particular book in general. Now I want to park on a little bit of a history as we, as, we, as we get our minds acclimated to this. Now, here's if we have to come back to a verse over and over again, I want you to see it. So go to Joshua 1, just for a moment, and I want you to look at verse 9, because really I think thematically, we can watch this kind of happen from beginning to end. But in a nutshell, he kind of gives us this, this, this little nugget of truth to say, here's what I want to impress on your hearts about me when we study. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you, wherever you go. Okay, believers, that truth that was penned down by and shared from Moses to Joshua and to every Israelite onward and inspired by the word of God is clearly designed to tell us one thing. 
God will never leave us or forsake us. In the most challenging circumstances, in the most deepest, darkest moments, whether there's fear or discouragement or grumbling and complaining, he has a plan for you, and wherever that plan takes you, he will be with you. And as we watch this unfold in the people of the life of Israel, that message of God's presence in his people has not changed, and it has stood the test of time. He is with us today. He will be with us tomorrow. He will be with you at work. He will be with you everywhere. Oh, Christian, relish the component of the reality that this God, no matter who you are and what you've done, he cares about you. And he's not just saying this. Well, you just grumble too much and so see you later. <laughs> if that were to be the case, I think he would have left me a long time ago. But the reality is he wants us to engage our minds to say, I shouldn't be like this, I should be like this. But always to remember our theology, he will be with us wherever he goes. Now let's take a look a little bit about Israel's past. Now here's your first blank. If you're a blank person, I put it there and you've been waiting, you've been waiting diligently for this. And here's the past. Choices have consequences. Now let's think about this for a moment. Here the people of Israel come, and let me take us to a, a, a little bit of history. Now, hopefully you can see this fairly well. At least you can see the line. Let me just retell the story to you a little bit. As you, can, you could go back through the Exodus and read this, which I hope you will if you've never done it. But this is the story. Here you have a people who have been slaved for 400 years in, in Egypt, and they had cried out to the Lord their God, and God raised up a deliverer in the person of Moses. Oh man, there's so much we could say about Moses, but we'll keep him for next week a little bit as a side note. But here you have a man who is taken out by, saved by a miraculous nature, brought into the household of the Pharaoh, who then becomes the deliverer that would deliver the people sent from God. Now you can't read that story in the Exodus and not scratch your head for a moment going, how did he orchestrate all that? Well, God did. Moses didn't do that. He didn't choose himself. God chose him on, as an agent on God's behalf. They get out of the land of Egypt. They, for, for all of these miracles and signs and wonders, they end up crossing the Red Sea. Wherever you end up thinking that is, there's a lot of points that people do if you're reading various geographical components. But they make it across wherever that was, and it was a miracle. Pharaoh's army drowns. I mean, but yet you get this picture, don't you? Here they are standing on the Red Sea and they're looking at Moses and they're hearing the rumble of the Egyptian army in the background. And they're saying to themselves, they turn to Moses and say, what have you done? You brought us out here to die. I mean, we would have been better off to stay in Egypt. I mean, I think Moses probably would have been hearing these words shortly after their uh, exit from, from Egypt going, what just happened? You wanted this. You called for it. He answered you. And now here's, here you are standing and saying, you're just here to kill us? The Red Sea opens. The people walk across. They go to Mount Sinai. They have an encounter with the very living God who comes down to Mount Sinai as if, 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 like a great earthquake, such importance of holiness of God that the people of Israel were not even allowed to touch the mountain. And if they touched it, they would die. You talk about holiness and seriousness of the people of God as they were camped around Mount Sinai. This is their God. But they were, he was different than the God of the ancient Near Eastern religions because this God was not just some God who wound up the clock and then let it go and was impersonable. He was a God who spoke. A God who spoke in righteous decrees and principles and laws so that you could know him. That's the whole point of the law. I mean, the New Testament says it was our schoolmaster so that we could learn the necessity of knowing why we need Christ. Here they are, they travel. Now, they come, this Mount Sinai experience, they get to the northern part of this area at the very top where the little flag is. It's like, uh, they didn't have GPS, so, uh, 
but there's a little flag there at the end. And they ended up at Kadesh Barnea. And at Kadesh Barnea, what is accounted for in the book of Numbers is that they chose from amongst the 12 tribes the men who would spy out the land and they would be gone for 40 days and they would go and they would say, tell us what the land was like. You can find this, uh, the sending of the spies in Numbers 13. Hopefully you'll go back and read that. Now here's, uh, here's what it, he said. Okay, now this is why, uh, in, in one sense, here's why this is so impers- uh, important. Have you ever heard this quote? Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Okay? This was a famous, made famous by Winston Churchill in, his, in one of his addresses, which he was quoting another individual, but then became popularized. And this is why history becomes important when we look at the people of Israel. If they didn't understand what they were doing, they would be doomed to repeat it over and over and over again. Now, what did God want for him? He didn't want him to repeat it. He wanted him to understand it. Well, look at this in Numbers, uh, in Numbers 13. They go in, they spy out the land. They started in Kadesh Barnea. They made themselves all the way to the north. Okay, geographical check for a moment. The land of Israel is this small, little, minute place. Okay, uh, if you've ever been there, you realize you could drive all over this place and get everywhere you wanted. It's 150 miles uh, from north to south, about 80 miles from east to west. It's so small, and one day you can be at, at, at Kadesh or in Hebron. You can be in Jerusalem. You can be in Galilee. You can be in the, in the Dead Sea. You can be anywhere you want. And yet it's a unique geographical location of topography in a way that protected Jerusalem and protected God's people. They spy out this land. Here's what it says in Numbers chapter 13. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel, from each tribe of their fathers, and you shall send a man, every one, a chief among them. Okay? Now, just tuck this away. He deliberately makes a point in Numbers, Moses does, to say that when he called out the spies, that it was the chief among, it was a chief individual among every tribe. Okay, now hold on to that till a little bit later. Not too tightly, though, because you got to follow me still. Numbers 13, notice the, dis- the unbelief of the people. It says, then the men who had gone up, this was after they came back, they said to him, we are not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Now, here these guys come back. You think about the anticipation of about a million or so people. If you take the census from numbers where they sent, they had a census and they picked all the people from 20 men 20 years on up and from each tribe there was about 603,000 people, but that didn't include Uh, women and children you're talking over a million some people who are who are sitting at Kadesh Barnea and the and the Canaanite people are on high alert you don't just take a million people and be unnoticed in a land that small God was saying we're here we've arrived I'm about to give it to you send in the spies let them let them give the people a precursor of the land that is filled with milk and honey. These spies come back, and they, and of course in numbers it records, they, uh, a couple of the spies that were sent uh, cut off one of those huge, large cluster of grapes because it was the grape season. And they come, and there's this picture of them holding it between the two of them because it was so weighty. They could come back. Could you imagine as they gathered before Moses and gathered before the people and then they saw the grapes? They're saying, this land is incredible. And then they went, but (laughs) there's a problem. Now, what is God trying to do? God is trying to get the people to live by faith. That at a moment in time when they think all is lost or how could this happen, there's no way God could do this, that they themselves, each one, man, woman, and child would say, our God can. He promised us and he has never went back on his promises. And the book of Joshua is filled with covenants and promises and land perspectives 
so that we can see God in every turn of history of the life of the people has proven himself faithful to them on every single measure. That's the God that we serve today, same faithful God who sent his own son. Well, these men come, and they, these spies, these ten spies, and I remember, you know, singing these little songs uh, when I was in uh, children's church many, many years ago. There was ten bad and two were good. It just stuck in my head. And, and there they were, Joshua and Caleb, these great models of faith. But there were ten other guys who said, we are like grasshoppers in their sight. Do you know that the descendants of the Annex are there, the descendants of the Nephilim? There's giants in the land. Yeah, there's grapes. If we can hide out and eat them in private. <laughs> but they're going to find us. And they're going to kill us. And they began to grumble and they began to complain. Notice in Numbers chapter 14. It says this. I don't have it up there. Let me read it to you. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Moses hears these words in Numbers 14, and he, he tears his clothes, and Joshua and Caleb all rent their clothes. They weep before the people, and this mob of, of people who were instigated by the ten spies are now grumbling and faithless, and they will refuse to enter into the land. And where do they want to go? Back to the place they just complained that they were. This doesn't make sense. God knew their heart and knew what they would respond like. And that's why always in the, in the Old Testament, the prophets would say, you are a stubborn people. Does that sound familiar in your own life in a little bit? I think God says that to me every so often, or maybe even more frequently than I realize. You are a stubborn Joshua. And I have to recalibrate my mind. Is am I living by faith? Am I going to be a people? Where would I have been that day? Where would you have been when those spies came back and gave that report? Would you have stood with Moses? Would you have stood with Joshua and Caleb? Or would you have been one of the people in the crowd grumbling and complaining and saying, get us back to Egypt. Who's, who's a good leader? Ah, we got so-and-so. Let's follow him. See, we're called to challenge to be challenged because choices really do have consequences. And we look at these now, this complaining generation, what's the consequence? I mean, could you imagine standing at the brink of receiving the promised land, longing for rest, having 400 years under your belt of slavery, going with anticipation that now you have a home. You're not just some some nomadic people that are just wandering around aimlessly in the wilderness. Oh, they stood on the brink of the promised land. A place was supposed to be filled with rest. And now he looks at them and he says, here's what's going to happen through the words of Moses. And you can see this in Numbers 14, verses, uh, verses 20, uh, 26 all the way through verse 38. I can't read every one. He calls them a faithless generation, and here's what he says. He says, all of you are going to die off. He says, you remember the census we took? Every man from 20 years old on up is going to be gone, and you're not entering the promised land, and you'll wander in the wilderness one year for every day that the spies went into the land to spy it out. They went in for 40 days. That means 40 days in the wilderness that you were going to learn that you should have trusted me. Oh, I wonder what it was like in the wilderness, having to reflect back on that. Could you imagine the initial response only a week after standing on the brink of the promised land and now heading back to the wilderness? This is not an enjoyable place. It is hot. It is oppressive. There's no food. 
But God, they would have to learn again what it was like to have God sustain them. In order to mark the security of this, of this uh, circumstance, he said, all the ten spies, all of them died by plague immediately. The people of Israel stood by as all ten of them died. And he said, this will be a mark to you that you realize, I mean what I say. Ten faithless spies die, only two are left. And lo and behold, it's the book, it's the one faithful man that has been called Joshua to be able to take these people into the promised rest that God had promised from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can I remind you this? In light of our Israel's past, believers, choices have enormous consequences. Don't think you can live some faithless life, don't care, come to church, act as if you're a Christian, but in your heart you're grumbling, you're complaining, you're faithless, you're not doing what God asked you to do. Don't think that God doesn't give out consequences. Yes, he's a God of forgiveness. Absolutely, amen. But you know, you can be forgiven and yet consequences remain. Moses pleaded with God on behalf of the people. And it was, and, and it was Moses' pleading with God that God said, Moses, I won't destroy him, even though God said, Moses, I can make a better generation out of you. And Moses said, no. Let the people of the nation see what kind of God you are. God is a forgiving and merciful God. And he forgave them. But they still had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And I don't know what choices you're making through your week and your life and your circumstances as you look back at your history. But rest assured and be mindful. The choices that you make today, the attitudes that, you, that become the character that you have, if they're not right, God will hold you into account. Ecclesiastes 12 says, everything will be laid bare. Everything will be given accountable. We're going to be those people. We need to have a heart check as we get into the book of Joshua to say, what kind of choices am I making right now? Am I a grumbler? Am I faithless? Am I standing out as a testimony for Jesus Christ? He wants to use you, but if you don't want to be used, there is huge ramifications. And he doesn't forget. And there's one day that you and I will stand accountable for our history, for our lives, at certain points in time where he says, what about that? You remember that? I think many times because we're so quickly to forget, we'll just want to cover our face and hide. Because our choices led themselves to massive consequences. Also understand this. Reaping and sowing is real. You want to sow to the flesh, Galatians 6 says, then you will of the flesh reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, Christian, you will receive life and fruits of the Spirit and joy beyond measure in a way that you will look and say, God is, is miraculous. But if you reap, guess what? An angry old person was once an angry young person. When they don't change their ways, they, it's not the season of life that shapes you. It's the choices. The 100,000 choices that you make in your lifetime. And most of them are small ones. But the small choices you make, if you deliberately look to the word of God to be your guide, you can have the kind of faith an encouragement that God has intended for you to live by so that you so people can see Christ in you. Well, what about this? Israel's present. The time had come. They went to the wilderness wandering, Deuteronomy 29. You probably have read it at this particular point if you've been reading through Deuteronomy. Moses calls all the people because it's close to the time that they would enter into the land. And he calls them, and he, he had now written the book of Deuteronomy as uh, he had written all five books, because why? Because he's not going. <laughs> I mean, wow. Here you have a man who is one of the greatest leaders of Israel's history, called out of the burning bush to do all kinds of incredible things for the Lord. 
and yet he's not going. He's written a book in Deuteronomy 29. He calls all the people because they were close to the time when the 40 years had been up. And he says, I need to gather the people and I need to remind you all of the book of Deuteronomy. This is why Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is a reason why he says in Deuteronomy 6 to pass this message on to your children. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. Why? They're standing on the brink of the promised land and they had been there before. And the faithless generation is now gone. Do you imagine if we had everybody here 20 years and older stand up and just take a look at the young, the young people that would remain if God had exiled us to the wilderness? They had to live a life knowing that their parents disobeyed God and now it was their turn. What choice would they make? Moses calls the children the, the children of these individuals together, and he says, remember what your parents did. Don't make the same mistake, and I'm not going to be with you. Oh, there was a huge lament, not only by Moses, but by the people when Moses wasn't be able to go into the land with them. Moses and Aaron, you remember, were rebuked. He hit the rock. God took Moses up to the high mountain, and he showed him, Perhaps something like this. There they were on the brink of the other side of the Dead Sea, looking over into the Jordan. They see off in the distance this little piece of area that's all green. And there it is, it's Jericho. They're in the dead center of the land. Moses calls the people, and he says, let me remind you of the blessings and the cursings. And if you go into this land and you get arrogant and you think that you got the house that you're living in because of somehow your good works or the, the crops that you bring in, that that was somehow your efforts, oh, remind yourself what it was like back in that wilderness. And don't think you couldn't go back. He said, here they are. The time had come in their present and God was now going to bring them into the rest that they had longed for. But he was going to do it without their leader. Could you imagine Moses, by the way? I mean, it says, it says in Deuteronomy 3, you read that chapter and it says that Moses was so disheartened that he just pleaded with God to let him go. He just pleaded with him. I know I did wrong. I know I did wrong, but please let me go with this people. I long to see the rest. And God said to him, Moses, you're forgiven, but you can't go. And he brings him up into this high area, perhaps, and he looks out, and he sees something like this, and he sees the land flowing with milk and honey, and God takes his life, and he sets up Joshua in the meantime to succeed him. Moses is gone, their great leader. You see this, in, and we look at this passage in Deuteronomy 18:15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Is it, to him, it is to him that you shall listen. All the people in the New Testament were waiting for the prophet like Moses. And if you just get the foreshadowing of John 3, when Jesus is talking to, in the context of Nicodemus, and he is saying, as so as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And the Redeemer and the prophet had come. All Jewish people would have understood that history, and Jesus knew it, and he was deliberately making the connection that the prophet that Moses talked about would come. And Joshua would, be, now would, would help them understand the rest that God wanted for you, God is, is going to bring in the future. Have hope. He's saying to them in Deuteronomy 4, listen and obey. Deuteronomy 4, chapter, verse 2. Don't turn aside from it. This is a, re a, a, a foreshadowing of what he's going to say to Joshua. Don't be afraid. Don't be, don't be discouraged, but be strong and courageous. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Don't turn aside from it. He says, in what great nation, Deuteronomy 4, 8, is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Take it into the land. Live by it. Teach these things to your children. Here's what it tells me. People like Moses, like Joshua, like Caleb, 
like so many other men in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11, that great men can have moments of weakness and have massive consequences. It doesn't matter what they've done. No, it doesn't matter what they've accomplished. It doesn't matter how greatly God has used you, men and women. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. And the quicker that we come to understand is that we get the privilege of being used. We begin to understand how majestic this really is. He can get somebody else to preach a sermon. He can get somebody else if you're not interested in sharing the gospel with people. He can use anyone he wants at any time he wants. If we become arrogant, we can have eternal, we can have severe consequences. Just like great men of faith like Moses. Moses' lack of faith, though, remind us this precious promise. That while Moses struggled and the people struggled in faithlessness, God's promises remained. No matter how faithless you are, you, no matter what you do, that doesn't mean God revokes his promises because he is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God who will never turn back from what he has said, which means he will save when he says he's come to save them. Let's go for this last point and quick. If that's even possible, but I'll be mindful. Joshua is the story of a people who have longed for rest. Wandering in the wilderness, wishing they had a place to call their own. Wishing they wouldn't be a people who would just be remembered as slaves in a land that was foreign to themselves. Joshua chapter 1 verse 13 says this, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest, and I will give you this land. The people wandered, waiting in anticipation. The children of a faithless generation who would enter and dwell. Why? He said, because you were faithful, faithless, older generation. All your biggest fear, did you catch it in Deuteronomy as you read it? Their biggest fear after the ten spies came back was, what's going to happen to our kids? And he was trying to say, what's going on in your heart? <laughs> and he said, because you didn't pay attention to your own heart. The children that you feared would not grow up free in a land filled with rest. They're the ones who are going to experience it. Oh, moms and dads, be serious about how you teach your children. Don't just sit there and say, well, that doesn't matter if we don't get to family worship. We don't read the Bible. Don't check on them for devotions. Don't see what they're doing and wherever they're at in school. Or don't see what kind of testimony they have. Don't lie to yourself that, oh, they'll just grow out of it. You don't just grow out of faithlessness. You make a choice to repent and turn back and turn to Christ by faith. Be mindful God wants us to experience rest. He wanted to give this people a land of rest. Rest for their weary soul. Rest for their heart. Rest from being hunted down, trying to be killed by people. Rest and be able to say, he is our God and he'll protect us. Do you feel that in your own weary soul as you live on this world filled with sin? The longer, or the more I turn on the news, the more I long for the real eternal rest. The more I see another school shooting displayed across the screen, another innocent bystander's life being taken, another, uh, another crime, another hatred component, that my mind just says, oh, Lord, please, come soon. We long for the rest that we can find. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this in a, in a, in a look back in Hebrews chapter 3. It's very interesting. He says these words. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, whereas, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And then the author says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you, you to fall away from the living God. Oh, that was the message of Moses as he stood on the brink with the people in the promised land wanting to see them experience the rest. Christian, it is the longing of your own soul to find rest in God. Hebrews 3.15 says this, As it is said today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. Oh, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, can I just plead with you for a minute? That God wants you to find rest for your soul. And that the remedy for your restless heart can only be found in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for your sins that he took upon himself and gave you a righteousness you didn't deserve. And all you have to do is confess your sins and call out to him and this great, merciful, forgiving God, just like he forgave the people of Israel and allowed them to experience the promised land, a foreshadowing of a rest to come, you can find rest, but you cannot find it without repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Don't harden your heart this morning. Don't say to yourself, I've got more time, or I'll just do it later. I've got a number of things on my bucket list that I want to accomplish and see and enjoy. Those things will pale in comparison one day when you stand before Jesus Christ, and he calls you into account if your heart is filled with unbelief. And he says to you, depart from me, for I never knew you. Today, you have the opportunity to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all you who are labor and are weary and heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul whether it's at the beginning point of salvation or all the way through your sanctification and growth, you can bank on God allowing your soul to find rest in him as you study who he is, you obey his laws, you obey his principles because he will be with us wherever we go. Moses wanted that ingrained in their mind as they stood on the opposite side of the Jordan saying, man, there's some big guys over there but we're going to trust our God this time. And we're going to see something our parents only wished they would have seen. Don't think that God can't bring various components of a revival in history. Don't watch the news and simply say, just say, well, God won't do that. Don't you think every other generation thought the same thing? We ought to pray and beg God, have a revival in this country that he stirs the hearts of people, that as many souls can be saved before the coming day of Jesus Christ, that they are saved and they're redeemed for his glory. We ought to long for that. Children of Israel now encamped on the opposite side of the Jordan. They had been here before. Moses, their great leader, is gone. They're sad. They've been appointed by, a new leader had been appointed by God in his, in his position. He had been found faithful. Joshua, one of, the, one of the faithful spies, God had appointed him to bring his people to the promised rest. When we come back next week, we're going to find, why is this guy, this guy Joshua, the commander of the people of, of God's army, the successor to Moses, what made this man something special? something of a way that he could succeed one of the greatest prophets that would ever be known. I can only imagine from Joshua's standpoint, he was shaking in his sandals because this was a huge task and there was a lot to be done. As we study this together, we're going to be wowed by the very person of God, his sovereignty and his providence of the people he picks at the time he chooses to work so that we can say, you know what? He's with us wherever we go. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you 
that you never leave us, you never forsake us. Lord, you love us to such a great degree that you would call us to be part of your family. Adopt us into your household. Only the kindness of the Lord, God of heaven, who would send his son could do something like this. That would give us the indwelling spirit to seal us and sanctify us for the day that he would return when we would find ultimate rest in him. And we thank you for what you do. Lord, help us as we examine even our own hearts now as we take communion. In your name we pray, amen.